This episode of Road Dirt the Podcast is brought to you by Law Tigers, motorcycle lawyers. You can find them at lawtigers.com. Welcome to Road Dirt, the podcast of Road Dirt Motorcycle Media and RoadDirt.tv, your down-home grassroots motorcycle brand covering what we like to call ride life. This is Rob Brooks, your host. Thanks for tuning in. And on this episode of Road Dirt, the podcast, we interview a longtime and popular motorcycle journalist named Peter Lloyd-Jones. Many of you, if you've ever read motorcycle magazines over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, whether it's Motorcyclist, Cycle World, Sport Rider, um, Roadrunner Magazine, you name it, um, at some point or another, you have read the musings and scribblings of Peter Jones, whether it's bike reviews, gear reviews, but probably more likely his columns and his stories. Because if Peter Lloyd-Jones is anything, he is an engaging and entertaining storyteller. Well, I, be, I first met him a couple of years ago at a Moto America race, and we kind of struck up a friendship and started corresponding and had an opportunity to review his book, which is out now, which is called The Bad Editor. You can get it on Amazon. We'll talk more about that and how you can find it at the end of our podcast here. And um, we also did a, not only a story on it, but decided we would set up a time to do a video chat. And uh, this is the audio transcript from that. And it's a little bit lengthy. It's about 40 minutes long. I guess that's not really long for a podcast. But he is an, as engaging to talk with as he is to read. And we hope you'll enjoy this as much as we have as well. So here we go. On this episode of Road Dirt TV, we chat with Peter Lloyd-Jones, noted moto journalist and writer for the last 30 years. You're in for an entertaining discussion. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Rob with Road Dirt, and we are joined by Peter Lloyd-Jones, a uh, noted writer and moto journalist for some 30-odd years now. Um, if you've ever, over the years, if you've ever picked up a motorcycle magazine, a uh, publication, um, during that time period, over these last 25, 30 years, at some point, you've read one of Peter's columns or you've read one of his biker gear reviews. And um, so I, I've, I've, I've been reading, Peter, your stuff for um, probably the better part of 25 years or so. Now, I think I first became acquainted with your writings in the early 2000s and um, mainly through magazines like Motorcyclist and Cycle World. And I always appreciated your um, bike and gear reviews, but what I enjoyed more was your storytelling. And uh, so I'm happy to have you on the, on, the, on the broadcast here, man. Thanks for joining me for a few minutes. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah. And um, as you might guess, I, I enjoy the storytelling more than the writing about the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Stories are just much more engaging. They're personal. They people people connect over stories, and and uh, we try to couch a lot of what we do on Road Dirt on RoadDirt.tv, even if it's bike and gear evaluations in the context of story. I just I'm like you, man. I find that um, much more engaging. In reading your book, and Peter Lloyd has Peter Lloyd Jones has a wonderful book out that we've been pushing on our site and our media called The Bad Editor. Collection, uh, collected columns and untold tales of bad behavior. And um, 
we picked up a copy. I appreciate it. And uh, I thoroughly enjoy I actually read it through twice and um, just really enjoy I learned something new about you that I guess I didn't know that before you were a writer, you were a rider, but you were a racer, too. You managed race teams and uh, things like that. Um, let's go back even earlier. How did how did you first discover motorcycling as a young man? Or like a friend of mine says, did motorcycling kind of discover you? Well, in high school, the group of people I hung out with, one of them, eh, two of them, was a motorcyclist. And all he did was talk about bikes. And we're oh, yeah. like, bikes, bikes, bikes. What the hell? Jeez. It's just, <laughs> it, you know, fine. Bikes are okay, but, you know there's got to be there's more to life and then uh yeah one day it was like early march and this is in syracuse new york so it's a it was a rare warmish day and we stopped at a donut place and he was driving and a motorcycle went by and he ran out the door and he drove away and we're like well, what the hell is that and then he came back like half an hour later goes, Oh yeah, I, I caught up with the guy and we had a, we had a chat. It was great. You know? And we're like, what about us? He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so eventually it stuck, you yeah. know, D despite my uh, fighting against it, I was really a car guy growing up. Uh, Watkins Glen was only like 70 miles away. I went to formula one races. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it, it was in the Nikki Lauda air when I was a teenager. Yeah. So that was an incredible time. And then uh, in college, I went to school in Florida because uh, I hated winter. So sure. I went to <laughs> University of South Florida, and I got a bike to commute on um, until it broke. Well, I kind of broke it. <laughs> Not you, man. Well, it, it was a two-stroke, and it would rev wildly out of control at, when I would come to a stop. And I didn't know what was going on. And I'm... It had a kill button on the handlebar, and I'm holding the thing in, and the RPMs would slow down, but they wouldn't stop. And so I'd put it in gear and hold the brake on and drop the clutch. I was doing everything just to just get to it to stop it from, running. Yeah, right. Yeah. So <laughs> I broke the transmission doing that. But, oh. it, you know, years you later, I realized the problem was the, the carburetor is inside the bottom cases, it being a two-stroke. Yeah. And the carburetor was leaking. And so if the engine's spinning, it's sucking air. And if the carb's leaking in the cases, it's sucking fuel. So there you go. Recipe, uh, yeah, recipe I for explosion. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't understand what why, you know, I was a I was a four-stroke guy also. Oh, yeah. So uh and then um and then I came back from college and then I started getting motorcycles. But uh I was a museum director before I went road racing. Oh cool. And they, they thought you alluded to that in the book. Cool. No, I don't think I did. Um, <clears throat> and they thought it was a little weird, but I was working like a maniac. So they're like, well, let's, let's, you know, let him do his thing. Mm -hmm. um, Cause the museum was just in desperate straits. Yeah. And uh, the buildings were falling in and, and, and I figured out how to write grants and I, and I, got funding for restorations and I figured out how to match the funding and matched it and completed the projects. So they're like, wow, we can't keep up with this guy, you know? So back to he's going road racing all the time. Well, we're just going to let it go. So well, how did you get into road racing. Tell me about that. That was a cool part of the story. 
as I read the, the book and everything, I, I, I didn't know about you. Tell me, tell me about the road racing. Was it just kind of a natural progression of street riding to just wanting to go all out on a track? Well, yeah, the problem was I was going all out on the street. <laughs> on the street. <laughs> so there was a group of guys that I would go to the races in Loudoun, yeah. uh, New Hampshire. And uh, this, was, this was before, you know, this is in the early 80s, the original track, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Briar Motorsports. And um, we wouldn't take the interstate. We would go across the uh, bottom of the Adirondacks and then cross into Vermont and cross, you know, go through the mountains over to New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, always, you know, hell-bent on election. <laughs> um, over the mountains man yeah yeah and then you know a couple of years where a few of us are saying yeah you know we ought to go road racing and and uh keith code school was there i took it in 84 i think it was yeah and um and finally one winter um we said you know okay let's all get together and have a meeting and because uh, we're gonna go road racing you know and so we had a meeting and everyone backed out of it except for two of us. Oh, so yeah. I, I was, you know, over 30 years old before I went road racing. So oh, two of us, we only got one bike. We didn't know what we were doing. And we just wanted to go endurance racing. We were both dead set on endurance racing. So one bike seemed fine. Yeah. The fact that nothing matters more to someone starting out racing than track time hadn't dawned on us. <laughs> so we had to split, you know, share practice with terrible idea. Get your own damn bike if you're going road racing. But we survived, um, although we broke a lot of bones <laughs> the first year. A lot of parts, a lot of bones. Yeah, and we terrified people, you know. They're like, oh, you guys, you know, um, you're crazy. Yeah, man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you we know it's dangerous. You know, we, we showed up at the dirt track races in Syracuse, and we're both on crutches. <laughs> <laughs> we're like yeah we're going cool, racing man. we're going racing again next year this is great and people are like whoa 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 so yeah we did and then uh we went endurance racing didn't have any idea what we were doing and but you get a lot of track time all right so we made that. up That's for we sure. made up for sharing a bike so after a while like halfway through the season you know we figured out how to ride a motorcycle on a racetrack and uh, but we had a slow bike, so the next year, we the Honda F two six hundred came out, and boy, I felt like I was cheating. I, I could pass bikes on the straightaway. That was a beast. You know? And uh, and we had to we had to learn how to you know go like hell through the corners because our bike was so fast. Yeah. So um, and then I saw you know why how come those guys got all those big stickers and beautiful looking machinery and stuff? So I I chased that. And we got Suzuki sponsorship and uh, we won three national championships, medium weight production, medium weight, superbike, heavyweight production, and then heavyweight superbike. We finished second. And this was uh, all in AMA, huh? No, no, no. With the Weir National. Endurance okay. And Weir, yeah. 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 And then in 97, I took the team in the AMA. That okay. uh, was the year of the, uh, 96, I'm sorry, 96 took the team to the AMA. That was the year Suzuki came out with the new GSX-R750. And um, I made some choices that didn't work out. But at Daytona, 
there were over 20 factory teams because Japanese superbike riders are there, British superbike, world oh God, superbike. Yeah, the world comes to Daytona. Yeah. Exactly. That was, that was like the end of the world showing up at Daytona. But um, one of our riders finished 12th. Frank Wilson finished 12th. We felt like we conquered the world. We, we were first privateer. and um, Yeah, that's a great finish for a privateer team. Yeah, back then with all those super bikes, especially. So, but we realized it was a one a mini one rider endurance. It wasn't a sprint race. Yeah, so yeah. we knew how to do pit stops. We 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 planned the red flag. We we told the riders if you've been out, if you feel like you've been out a dozen laps, and uh, well, the red flag was a, a pace car. They wouldn't stop the race. So they they did a pace car. So, you know, we thought that all through and told the riders, hey, if you feel like you've been out for a dozen laps, just come down pit lane because we're ready. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if, if the pace car flag comes out and uh, totally worked out to our advantage. Um, we would have, we, we were off. one yeah. lap down from the winner uh -huh. until the final lap of the race. They just nipped us to put us two laps down. So it also being only one lap down almost, you know, it, still there was a lot of pride in in uh, hanging, you know, within the top fifteen there as a privateer team. There had to be a lot of a lot oh, of people the guys. It was huge. Great yeah. achievement. Great achievement. And then our season went all downhill. <laughs> but you peaked out, man. <laughs> you peaked right there. If you're yeah. gonna peak at if you're gonna peak somewhere, Daytona is a great place to peak out. Yep. Yep. That's for sure. And then, you know, in doing that, I, I wrote some freelance stuff because all my time with bikes, you know, I just had a lot of bike thoughts and uh, pitched, I pitched my first story to Cycle World and they refused it. And then I pitched it to second best motorcyclist <laughs> and they bought it yeah. and uh, never had, never had another story rejected. Well, would you say that um, I'm kind of putting two and two together here? I hope I'm correct here that your time of writing proposals for the museum as a curator, trying to, you know, um, elicit funds and things like that and try to write a compelling argument for the need for that kind of really, would you say that kind of fueled the ability to write compelling stories about motorcycling? Maybe those years as a, as no. a museum writer? <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> writing a grant, is the most painful, driest type of writing there is. <laughs> you just got to hit all the marks. Nothing funny. Nothing can, you know, it, it's terrible. It's and, about writing the right language and rather than telling a compelling story, huh? Oh, you got to know all the secret code, what to say, how to say it. Um, you know, the, the first time I wrote a grant, they, they, uh, they have people review it and, and you get to see the reviews. Mm -hmm. And, oh, you know, I was ready to kill myself. You know, they're like, oh, this reads like it's the first time this person ever wrote a grant. You know, I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> so I had to figure it out. And uh, but then once I got good at it and I was getting funded, I still hated doing it. Yeah. So I would I would write whatever I wanted. I would put all sorts of humor in there when I was writing the narrative parts and then I'd have to go in and take it all out, you know, and make it serious in the end. But it, it, it entertained me, you know, while I was doing it. Well, it was an, it sounds like it was an exercise, even though you didn't get to publish those parts, you'd take that out. 
it was an exercise in what would pay off later as a motorcycle journalist and a and a writer in the industry here, you know. Well, you know, it, it probably helped me get sponsors for the motorcycle team because, you know, as the museum director, you're always chasing money. <laughs> and as a racing team owner, you're always chasing you're always money. Money. <laughs> and um, I mean, it, I, I got really suckered into it because, you know, when, when we think about, I had a money deal for tires and like unlimited tires. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I had bikes from a major manufacturer and a parts budget and um, other money deals. And altogether, at the last few years, I, I had like 175000 or more in sponsorship. Nice. But it, it cost like one hundred ninety dollars at least. To race, yeah. To do it, yeah. Support so team, yeah. I, I'm paying out of my pocket to try to keep the team going and then uh, selling off the bikes and trying to get back to zero before the next year. I mean, when we stopped racing after um, 86, it was like another five years I was paying off the debts. I think, the, I think a lot of the team thought I was making profit off of this, you know, because I, I couldn't pay the riders, but – I supplied them with bikes for sprint racing also whenever I could, and they got to keep any other contingency. So um, you, in a lot of ways, you were like a small business owner because so many times small business owners pay their people and have to keep the business going and make very little that they actually take home and live off in the end. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing. It was a business when – um, because the, the co-founder, Tim Taylor, of our team, decided it, he, he just wanted to go racing. He didn't want to deal with a team in a national series. So I just kept doing that. And um, I, I was a dictator. You know, I, I was the lead. And you have to have that on a racing team. Um, and I saw other teams. You know, they're like best buddies, and they start a team. And then halfway through the season, you know, you see the tools flying and them screaming at each other, you know, never, never happened in, uh, in my pit, you know, because there was one dictator that ruled the whole thing. And um, set the pace literally and figuratively. Yeah. And I remember one day I, I, the riders, they started calling my crew chief dad. Hey dad, you know, can I do this or dad, what do you think about that? And I'm like, well, I should be dad. You know, how come you're not calling me dad? <laughs> I want to be loved. And then I realized, no, that wasn't my position. That wasn't your he, role. He yet. was dead. I was the uh, mean ass uncle, you know, that yeah, you were the yeah. uncle. And, and uncle that's, that's what you had to do. And there was one guy who was trying to rip me off and I, and I stole his scooter at Daytona cause he, he wouldn't pay me for almost 200 bucks that he owed me. And, um, so he came over to the garage threatening me and man, everybody in my garage jumped between him and me. Your crew. Like, wow, I'm not dead, but this is okay. Yeah. Your boys got your back, man. I want to talk yeah. a little bit about the book. I, um, when I got the book, of course, uh, Peter's book is divided into a uh, collected columns and then a section untold tales of bad behavior. And, um, there were, uh, of course, the, un the collected columns are from a lot of your early writings with sport rider, uh, motorcyclist, and others like that. 
And um, the thing I really enjoyed in, in your in seeing reading some of those columns again that I read years ago and then or some and some of the ones I hadn't read before is that uh, what makes you a great writer is the fact that you're both entertaining uh, and you're thought provoking. And um, that's not very common among writers. And you had both you have both of those qualities. And uh, I really enjoy that um, in your I book. Appreciate it. One of the things I'm going to share with, with our viewers here. Uh, one of the things I, sh I shared in, in my article on it was uh, one of your chapters is called uh, Give Me Them G's. And this is just a good example of, um, to me, of the one I, I found most memorable of, uh, of entertaining writing that's also thought provoking, where he says, quote, thinking back over my life's experiences with speed, I'm beginning to realize that it's not so much the ultimate top speed reach that makes me all giggly inside. It's more the speed at which that speed is reached. It isn't so much the going fast that speed freaks like me desire. It's the getting too fast as quickly as possible that we can't resist. It's not the fast. It's the going faster fast. It's an easy thing to get confused about, no? So speed freaks might be an incorrect appellation. It should be better G freaks. And I just found that was, it made me smile, but then I thought, yeah, I think that's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but because I'm kind of a bit of a speed freak, but what am I really, do I enjoy just blasting along top speed or do I enjoy the climb to top speed? And I think I'm with you on that. I think I enjoy the climb to top speed. And that was the thing that's, uh, that the book is very, that that's very exemplary of what I found in the rest of the book is something I go, oh, that's cool. Oh my gosh, that's true. And, I appreciate uh, that. That's great. That's great. So, um, well, one thing I probably mentioned is one of those stories um, that I realized road racing. When you're going 150 miles an hour down a straightaway, it, it, even like in a pack of motorcycles, they're all going the same speed you're going. Right. And so there's there's not a lot of sensation of of speed even even happening. And then the other thing is, if you're trying to pass one of them. And you're not going fast enough. You're going too slow. <laughs> so again, you 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 know the sensation of speed is like all you're thinking is I'm going too damn slow. Can't get by this guy. So you know it's it's all relative. But the thing about acceleration, you feel it. Yeah, Every that's true. Sure. You know whether you're alone or there are people around or what, you are feeling it big time. Yeah, you feel the G's on acceleration. And that's because once you get up to 150 miles an hour on a long stretch, your body's caught up with the bike. But it's oh, yeah. the speed to get there yeah. that I agree, I think, is the real, is the real rush. And but Then uh, if you go to an extreme, like uh, Doug Myers, who's done a lot of time at, uh, at uh, Bonneville Salt Flats. I think mm. he's retired from it now. But um, – when I uh, set a land speed record over 200 miles an hour, it was within a one mile um, distance. And so the, the speed was just at the lights themselves. Yeah. The whole way there, all I'm doing is accelerating, which, which is what a drag racer does too. You right, know, it's, right. it's, it's all acceleration. And yeah. as Doug pointed out to me, the big difference with Bonneville is at Bonneville, you live with the speed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's five miles. You get up to speed and then you're on it. 
until you yeah. until you hit the last lights. I mean, you, you got one mile until the first set of lights, which is where the timing begins, and they time right. each mile separately. So you've got four miles that they're timing, and your your speed is going to be climbing through the second mile for sure. And yeah. generally by the third mile, everyone, you know, unless you're trying to go 400 miles an hour, you know, they're, you, you've reached terminal and you're just trying to keep and it there. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing because it's, um, it's a surprisingly violent experience at Bonneville because you're going through car ruts and um, you're losing traction. It's, it, you know, it looks like a wedding cake and it feels like a wedding cake and it has the traction probably of a wedding cake. Oh, it's Lord. just salt. Yeah. That's and insane, man. So you're fun with the bike and I won't go into all that, but I, I had a way more exciting experience than it was supposed to be. But um, you <laughs> get to the end. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I was going to say my favorite portion of the book, about halfway through the book, um, I sent you an email and just said, man, I'm enjoying it. And I've uh, gotten through the first section, getting ready to begin this, the next. And you emailed me back saying, thanks so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the second part even more. And when I did the untold tales of um, bad behavior, I really did enjoy that more because that was almost like a peeling back the veil and sticking your head in and looking around at what the life of a moto, moto journalist is, was really like back in those heady days of, of motorcycling in the 90s and in early in the 2000s. And, um, you know, I, I just, I was pretty fascinated by that. One of the sections in it, one of the chapters in there, you, uh, when it talks about bad behavior, misadventures, not all of that is your, is your bad behavior and misadventures. I'm letting the cat out of the bag here. Some of that is brand representatives, other journalists and riders and racers you encountered. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun romp you know, in the second half of the book. And uh, one, one of the things you say in it, uh, one of the chapters is uh, a manufacturer's media liaison once told me a certain motor journalist was no longer welcome at his brand's introductions because that journalist had said in reference to one of the bike's brands, quote, this is the worst handling motorcycle I've ever ridden, end quote. I acknowledge that saying that was improper, though I privately knew the bike was the worst handling motorcycle I had ever ridden. But there were <laughs> there are ways to express shortcomings without canceling the relationship. That right there was a great statement. There are ways of hand to express shortcomings without canceling the relationship. Our world needs that phrase right now, big time in cancel culture and everything. <laughs> but you go on and say that said, since I'm not mentioning brands, I wish you had, but I understand why you didn't. If that bike isn't the worst handling motorcycle of all time ever until the earth is consumed by our swelling sun, I do not desire to experience the worst handling motor, motorbike ever made. <laughs> Just a, a great statement. But in the middle of that, there's this cool little nugget about express. there are ways to express shortcomings without canceling the relationship. And that was like, that's a gold nugget in a piece of enjoyable prose. Well, thank and, you. Thank you. And I have to, um, to give a little history on me writing this, it uh, I had more stories of bad behavior of others than myself. And I had to set the book down for a while for, I don't know, like six months and then pick it back up. And 
reading through the, those new stories I had written to get myself back in, in tune with the project, I realized there's too much anger in here. And um, I don't like it. This, this, is, this is supposed to be entertaining and fun. And so I, I fixed the stories uh, that I could fix and make them less angry. And the ones that I was having a hard time with, I set them aside. And then I included more stories of my bad behavior. Because mm -hmm. um, I figured it's, if I throw myself under the bus the most to begin with, then it'll all be acceptable. Um, and, it, and it put me in a better mood in the writing. Uh, so as you know, there might be a second volume. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I was. you kind of alluded to that at the end of the book that, um, well, that I've, might I've be cleared, enough. I've cleared the way with this book to now throw everybody else under the bus a little more. There you go. <laughs> I think you've earned the right to toss, drag a few under the bus with you, you know, for round two. I was but, thinking um, about it the other day, and I'm like, am I going to do that second book? And then I thought, you know, of, of a couple of the things that I – and putting in it and i'm like yeah people people want to know these stories <laughs> oh yeah oh heck yeah man absolutely the problem is um some of the people i'm writing about are still in the industry and they absolutely will know that it's <laughs> them i'm writing about so it's them but other, others have retired you know but probably but, at the uh, age where we don't care anymore it's okay well and and a lot of these stories, like you're seeing, you know, I, I say in places, you know, the stories I couldn't previously tell. And it's not that I couldn't tell them because I'm ratting everybody out. Because as you just alluded, I don't mention any brands. I don't mention any names. No, it's, yeah. I'm not trying to even a score. Even with these stories I haven't told yet, I'm not trying to even any score. Um, but the thing is, in a motorcycle magazine, you got to write about this stuff. People want to know about this stuff. What about the bikes? What about the new jacket? What about the suspension? And, you know, people want to know about this stuff. So there's just not a lot of room for stories like this. And, and when I had a column there, I could talk about the lifestyle of motorcycling and, and get that off my chest. So that, that's what I, in the magazines you wrote in that I used to subscribe to back in the, in those days, those are what I always went to. I'd go to Keith codes columns uh, I'd go to Joe Gresh's columns. I'd go to Peter Jones' columns. And those are what I'd read first. And then I'd go read the other stuff because I'm kind of wired for story myself. So I always enjoyed you guys' storytelling. It seems like now that we're entering in, I, need, I know I need to wrap up. I need to let you go here in a minute or so. As we enter, as we seem to be, where well, we are transitioning almost fully now um, from a print world in, in not only in motorcycle journalism, but in, you know, print media as well into a completely digital age where we're making that shift. Um, how do you see motorcycle reporting changing in these times now? And where do you see it going? Where do you see oh, the future of not only of motorcycle journalism, but of, of motorcycling in America going? There's so many changes taking place. That's a really big question. It's broad. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I talked to uh, a couple manufacturers and um, about this, um, just probably four or five years ago, not, not even recently. And I said, you know, this whole thing of inviting media to come to an event and giving them all bikes to ride and hosting them and uh, international introductions. Um, 
is this still being done because it's identifiably useful to marketing the products or is it just part of habit and romance that this is how it's always been done? And they both said, we've been having meetings to discuss that. And we're wondering if, if we should be doing this anymore, if it, if the cost is justified. So that part of the relationship might change. Um, and then also um, marketing this book has shown me, um, I thought I knew how to connect with motorcyclists. And I guess I did because it, like a dozen different media outlets, it's mentioned in um, at least a half dozen reviews in different motorcycle publications, um, great reviews on Amazon. People even love the cover. So if you judge books, by the cover, it still passes the test. It's a cool cover. And, it's cool art, man, for sure. I've been shocked at how slow the sales have been. And I'm like, what the hell? And then I I, uh, I was talking to a manufacturer, the only one I know of who, who admits having the book. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mentioned this to him and he says, he says, if you can figure it out, let us know. Because trying to sell motorcycles is about the same thing. So yeah. It's changing really fast. And the thing is, the money shifted away from the magazines, and the magazines couldn't survive without it. And you would I would have thought the brands want the magazines, but apparently, no, they didn't think it was worth it. So as you can see, 90% of, you know, maybe the magazines, motorcycle magazines in the USA are gone. They're gone, man. They're, yeah. either, they're either trying to figure out what digital looks like or like American, like like you know American Iron, they just closed their doors and says we're done, goodbye. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And some, you know, like like when uh, Bonnier bought all the titles. Yep. And they had motorcyclist and cycle world. You know, everyone's wondering, well, when are they going to cancel one of those, those two titles because they compete with themselves? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and. Um, what seven titles gone since I know. buy them and kill them it's crazy company brought them all together yeah. in print seven print titles gone and even cycle world gone forget about when when motorcycles is going to go cycle world is gone in print they all still have websites yeah um but then you know the influencers which are getting a lot of attention from the manufacturers they have nothing anymore it's it's totally I don't know. The manufacturers might still be supplying them with product or even money, um, but there's nothing there because the algorithms have changed. If you go on Instagram today and try to become an influencer, it's not happening because mm -hmm. Facebook owns it and they decide what the algorithms are going to be. And all the, uh, the, the pages on Facebook, you know, if you go look at all the, maybe I shouldn't be saying this out loud. You go look at the numbers that motorcycle magazines have on Facebook. All those magazines are convinced that, oh, we did that. We, we got 100,000, 300,000 followers on Facebook. No, they didn't do that. Someone at Facebook purposely went after motorcycle publications so that they could build uh, a source for advertising. Mm -hmm. That anyone who wants to advertise motorcycle products, they can they can have directed advertising to all these people that they drove to all those websites. And the problem is that those magazines that have those numbers, like 300,000 followers, 
less than 1% of their followers see what they post because Facebook is a business. And the puppet master behind it, you know? Right. And magazines are like, we don't buy ads. We, or we don't, yeah, we don't buy ads. We sell ads. Mm -hmm. But Facebook is like, well, okay, never mind. Yeah. So all those numbers mean nothing. All, All those followers mean absolutely nothing unless you want to buy an ad and have those followers see your ad. Then you can reach them. Yeah. But it's, and so, yeah, on Facebook and, you know, and even with viral, oh, this video went viral. That's because Instagram decided that video was going to go viral or Facebook decided it was going to go viral. Yeah. Things do not go viral organically. That Those days are over. Mm. These are, these are businesses. And if, if you think you're going to, well, there's, there's one person who's young enough to know better built their business inside of Facebook and then was complaining because so few people saw it. And I'm like, well, do you realize you built your business inside somebody else's business? <laughs> and um, yeah. that, that person doesn't like to communicate with, with me anymore. <laughs> Pretty interesting, man. But Pretty anyway, funny. it's it's a huge question, you know, and, and as you can see, there's a lot of, it's still changing. It's still rapidly so, changing by the day practically i'll have yep. that's for sure so i you know I, I i need to mention i don't know if you like this but i need to mention you know i got a column in rider magazine now and it's in print and i'm like holy hell i thought that ship had sunk yeah for sure so um rider magazine is is going good and i'm in it i'm good happy Happy I like man. I like print and and apparently enough other people do and, and I don't think print's dead. I think I like hope vinyl, not because I still enjoy it too. Like vinyl, it's gonna find its way back. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I mean, we're all digital on Road Dirt. We launched in 2019 all digital, but on a personal level, maybe it's my age, maybe it's my background. I love having something in my hands. It's tangible. I still enjoy. I've got a got a coffee table full of them sitting over here, old magazines and stuff like that, books, tabletop, motorcycle books. So I'm with you on that. Well, what's on your plate these days? We'll fin- we'll kind of land the plane, park the motorcycle right here. What's on your what's your newest project? What's on your plate these days? I'm working on a graphic novel that doesn't have a motorcycle in it. Oh, oh yeah. What one might appear a very in a very small way. And um, I also, uh, I lead a secret life. I, I write um, scholarly philosophy papers that I deliver at, at uh, peer-reviewed um, philosophy conferences at universities. <laughs> and go. weirdly, although I hated writing grants, I love writing these papers. Yeah. And you have to hit all the marks, but I'm not a philosopher, so I can bend a lot of the rules. And I'm actually published in the uh, Sartre Studies International Journal. So the you fact can, that they published me shows I'm not just wasting air. Because um, you're not, you don't consider yourself a philosopher. You're not afraid of coloring outside the lines. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And, and, and I get to be more loquacious in my writing than, than they're allowed to be. So. Push the boundaries um, with them, man, for sure. And then what else am I working on? Oh, I'm working on a uh, project that I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement for. <laughs> I've done a few of those. Yep. So 
so I can't talk about it. I understand. And then, uh, <laughs> I'm working on a book on uh, freedom. Uh, not well, free will, the concept of free will, because there's a movement right now, a lot of people writing about how we don't have free will. And um, I, I'm, I take the argument that we do. So I'm working on that. And that, that that's a lot of fun. And um, You're keeping what else? What comes after that? Well, and then, you know, I'm sorry? You're still growing, still stretching, still yeah. writing. That's good stuff, man. Oh yeah, 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 and then and then volume two if um if things go well. But I, I got a bunch of signings coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. New York City in a bike night next Tuesday at Skyline Driving at Hudson New uh, Moto Coffee Machine in Hudson, New York, on the thirty first, and then on the thirteenth of. August, I'll be at the BMW RA rally, which is 1,500 people, and, and I'm one of the featured speakers. Cool, man. And then uh, I'll be at Mike Seat's um, Cafe Racer event outside of Pittsburgh on the 15th of August. So, Well, best to you, man. I appreciate you joining us um, and chatting some here a little bit. And I uh, look forward to reading Volume 2, as well as your other musings and scribblings as as you put those out as well and uh, enjoy talking with you, my friend. Hey, I appreciate, I appreciate all your help and your very kind words. Thank you very much. We appreciate you, brother. This is Rob and Peter with road dirt ride life. Well, we certainly enjoyed our time talking with Peter Jones and we hope you enjoyed this conversation as well. Peter's a great writer and a great storyteller, and uh, you ought to check out his book if you have a chance. It is called The Bad Editor, Collected Columns and Untold Tales of Bad Behavior. You can find that on Amazon. You can also pick it up, I think, directly off of his site. You can go to thebadeditor.com, and I think there are links in there as well to uh, pick up the book, as well as find out some more information on on the man and the myth and the legend himself, the miscreant, as we call him. So uh, we certainly enjoyed our time with him, and we hope you do as well. Well, check us out also on um, on our pages. We've got three social media pages, all of them called Road Dirt TV, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out our uh, YouTube channel as well, Road Dirt TV. We've actually got the video portion of, um, of our chat with Peter on there, as well as all the other... Uh, ride stories and bike reviews and race coverage and things like that that we do out there on the on the YouTube channel. And definitely check out our online magazine at roaddirt.tv. All kinds of great stories going back for several years by a number of our different writers and photographers and contributors. We hope you'll check all that out. Well, this is Rob with Road Dirt. Until next time, ride life. Thank you.